back up here today. It's been a couple of months now, so glad to be back before you. Glad to bring the Word this morning. I'd invite you um, to take out your Bibles if you have them. I hope that you do. And turn with me to 1 Samuel and chapter 12. First Samuel in chapter 12, our text today is going to be verses 19 through 25. First Samuel 12, verses 19 through 25. So when I preached here in view of a call, I, I made mention of how it's always a tough thing for a preacher to come and deliver a one-off sermon, meaning just, you know, a stand-in sermon, uh, because... An expositional preacher relies on context, right? And you develop that as you work your way through a book. But yet, I have to come in here and give you all the context in one, you know, two and a half to three hour sermon. So, um, we'll see what we can... Okay, a couple of you come. There you go. No, we have to try to keep it below that. Um, but with First Samuel 12, it's such a, a wonderful text. But I, I will say to you, all texts are intimidating. But this one especially because... There is just so much devotional depth in this chapter of the Bible that we could pursue for uh, many weeks in a row, but we're going to do our best uh, this morning to really just press into the heart of what the prophet Samuel is uh, conveying to God's people here as they have sinned, as they have strayed from their God, and as he is calling them back to repentance and to faith in the Lord their God. If you would look with me. 1 Samuel chapter 12, picking up in verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord. And serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Let's pray. Our God, most holy and gracious and sovereign Trinity, we're here before you this morning, O Lord, to render to you the praise that belongs only to you, and toward that end, we now gladly profess our utter need of this word that is before us. We need it for faith, we need it for practice, because by this word we are able to know you, and to know your law, and to know your gospel. So Holy Spirit, together we ask you to please enable the faithful preaching of this word by your servant this morning, and the receiving of it by those gathered to hear. And we ask that you would use it to edify this body of believers and to strengthen your church as a whole for the glory of God above all and for our good. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. When I was about eight years old, um, I was standing in our, our kitchen there at home with my mom and with my brother, and we were having a conversation. I don't remember about what. 
but, but in the midst of this conversation, I, I looked over and said something to my mother that I should not have said. Now, thankfully, I don't remember what it was, but what I do remember is the feeling I had when it left my lips, was that I should not have said that. And it was immediately a feeling of fear. I was afraid. Now, here's the important part. Here's where it gets very important, what I did next. So in my eight-year-old wisdom, I didn't run to my mom. I didn't immediately apologize, but instead, I ran 20 feet down the hallway into my room and hid in the closet. <laughs> so as you can imagine, it didn't take very long for me to be found and to have to bear the consequences of, uh, of my poor choice of words. But I share that with you because I think that somewhat illustrates and conveys the response of natural man before God when God grants him the grace to see something of his sin. That's where our experience with God begins is with our sin and the knowledge of that sin. Only through that can we come to know the grace and the mercy of our Lord and Savior. But oftentimes, and even often with worldly people, sinners who never ultimately come to Christ in God's mysterious and sovereign grace, He does grant them to see something of their sin. And the response is fear. And I think that is really what Samuel is trying to deal with here in the people of Israel. You see, they have been following, the rather the Lord has called them to follow Him. You can read through the first five books of the Bible and see their struggles at faithfulness, see their grievous sins against Him. That didn't change during the period of the judges. In fact, it only seemed to get worse and worse. And here again in Samuel's day, they have sinned again against the Lord by asking for themselves a king, as we read there in verse 19. And so for Israel, they know enough of the Lord to be afraid, but they don't know enough of Him to trust His covenant love. And so their sin, as we said, is in asking for a king. But we need to be careful to know that it wasn't merely that they asked for a king that was the issue. In fact, if you put all the Bible together, it seems that it is appropriate for God's people to have an earthly king. He gave that provision in Deuteronomy 17. And then obviously our Lord and Savior sits in the office of king. That is a good thing. The problem was in their heart in asking for a king. Their exact words were, give us a king like the other nations. And this was in the midst of, of the period of the judges where they were constantly defending their land, uh, constantly coming under attack from the pagan peoples around them, especially the Philistines. And their sin was, instead of turning to the Lord, trusting in Him who is their ever-present help in time of need, instead... They said, no, look at all the kings of the earth. Let's be like them. Then we can be secure. Then we can rest. Then we can have peace. So as God explicitly says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, He says to Samuel, they have rejected me from being king over them. You fast forward here. And in the first part of chapter 12, what Samuel has done is called them to account for this sin. He has laid it before them, made it clear that they have sinned against their Lord, the Lord their God. And above that, God gave a sign 
namely thunder and rain coming in a period that was normally dry, the season of harvest of wheat during the months of May and June, he sent this thunder and rain that validated what Samuel was saying. And the people were, as we see, very afraid. Now, a major theme of 1 Samuel that we need to bring into our our examination of the text this morning is that God is the only sovereign. You see, this this issue of kingship is not incidental to Samuel's narrative, but uh, it, it really gets to the core of what's going on here. 1 Samuel labors to show that God is the only sovereign. It begins with Samuel's supernatural birth, where God opens the barren womb of Hannah and brings forth Samuel. It goes on and we see Hannah's uh, wonderful song in chapter 2 in which she exalts the sovereign God. She exalts his right to raise up and to destroy, to give life, to bring death, to do as he pleases. We go on to chapter 5 and we see God's total freedom where the people of Israel think, if we just bring the ark with us, it'll bind God to work for us and to give us victory. And it does not because God cannot be bound. He is in and of himself, the only authority and power. Continues to move on in chapter 7, we see God not raise up an army to defeat the Philistines that were attacking the Israelites, but rather God disperses them supernaturally again by his strong hand, again showing his ultimate power. And it continues in the chapters immediately preceding this, where we see God's Um, condescension to allow the people to have for themselves a king, but yet he chooses that king. And he calls out Saul in chapters 9 and 10, which brings us here where the people have been granted their king and Samuel, as it were, is, is basically giving his farewell address. It might even be labeled as such in your Bibles. And he's basically repeating the history of Israel He's reminding them of who this God is. And in a way, he's shepherding them through this moment. He says there in verse 19, or the people say rather, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They recognize that they have sinned against the Lord their God. And they are in a fearful position really a moment of, uh, of decision of which way are they going to go. And as we said, the natural man, his response is to flee from the Lord. And instead, Samuel is there to call them to flee to the Lord, to rest in his mercy and grace. Now, obviously, there's a lot of backstory there, but I want to press in right now as we seek to walk into this text and really bring it to, to our own experience, kind of tie this into. How do we relate to this? Well, I think in some sense, we've all been in Israel's shoes. If no no other time than when we were first converted or in the the moments leading up to our conversion, what I referenced at the beginning, where we had some sort of understanding of our sin, but we didn't know what to do with it. We realized that we sinned against the Holy God, but we didn't quite understand the gospel yet. And in that moment comes a great insecurity, again, of knowing our sin, but not knowing God. It results in thinking, keep this God away from me, whatever it takes, which makes sense if we don't know the grace of God, right? 
we understand something of his wrath, then of course we're going to say, yeah, just keep it away. Just do whatever we can to keep that at bay, to, to preserve ourselves. But where it becomes even more problematic is when those whom God sets his heart upon veer into that way of thinking. Whenever we as God's people neglect or seem to forget God's promises, his covenant, his grace. His covenant people should never have this thinking. That's what Samuel is conveying here. But the question remains, well, what about sin? If God is holy and righteous and just, as he is, and if he will bring every transgression into punishment, as he will, then what am I to do with this sin that I know that I have? Well, the answer Samuel points to first and foremost is found in the person of God. He points out that God's election is not rooted in your good doing, but rather in His good pleasure. And the certainty of His promises are rooted not in your good doing, but in His good and holy character. In other words, because God is who He is, that is why we can trust Him to come before Him to bring our sin and to trust that He will deal with it and He will be merciful to us. That is, the sinner is called not to run away but to run to God in repentance and faith. And quite to the contrary, only those who run away have reason to fear. Only those who flee from Him have reason to fear. So with all that said, our text this morning is in one sense a, a covenant renewal. And we say that a number of times throughout the Old Testament. Most recently to this chapter in Joshua chapters 23 and 24, where the covenant is renewed upon entry into the promised land. In another sense, it's an exposition of Exodus 20 and verses 5 and 6, where God says, For I the Lord, the Lord, sorry, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. As it comes to us, it's simply this, that we would come to know the God who has brought us into His covenant, and that we would turn always to Him, seeking obedience and finding assurance for our souls in God Himself. So we've established that the people recognize their fault in verse 19. But it's Samuel's response that is most shocking. And it's one of the greatest, in my opinion, paradoxical statements in the Bible. And by that we mean something that seems contradictory at first, but in reality is not. His response is, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. What we see here is that Godly fear turns to God, but we have to describe what we mean by that. The reason that statement is paradoxical is because what we would expect to read, knowing the justice of God, the sin of Israel, and them standing before God's prophet, we would expect to read, be very afraid. You have committed all this evil. But nevertheless, we see that apparently not all fear is created equal. Because if you skip on down to verse 24... We see the command, only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. It's the same verb there as in 
verse 20, where Samuel says, do not be afraid, or in other words, do not fear. Well, what do we do with that? I think we can find some help in the example of one of the kings of northern Israel that came later on down the line in 2 Kings chapter 15. Uh, his name was Menahem, and he was one of the, the last kings of northern Israel before the kingdom fell. He was evil. He followed in the footsteps of the evil kings that came before him. And in First Kings, I'm sorry, Second Kings 15, 17 through 20, we read that in his day, Pul, the king of Assyria, came against the land. And it says, Menahem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver that he might help him to confirm his hold on the royal power. And he came up with all this money by exacting it from the people of Israel to give it to the king of Assyria. Now, why did he do that? It's because Assyria was the world power of that day, and they were conquering people right and left, and they were pretty good at it. And so Menahem, he became fearful. He was very afraid. And obviously he did not turn to the Lord. He did not turn to the Lord his God and trust in his goodness and trust in his provision. Instead, he thought, what can I do to try to make things happen my way? And so in his fear, he turned to the king of Assyria and said, hey, maybe I can pay him off and he'll lead me alone. You see, that is an illustration of worldly fear. It's an anxiety that comes from not trusting in the Lord and instead basically lifting ourselves to the position of sovereign. In other words, we reject the sovereignty of God and figure, well, if anything's going to happen, I have to do it for myself. And we all know, even if not in our minds, by experience, that we're not in control. It gives us a lot of anxiety. Now compare that to Psalm 27 and verse 1, where the psalmist writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The answer is, no one. You can compare that as well with what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. He told his listeners, Do not fear those who can only destroy the body, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so we distinguish here between the two types of fear, a worldly fear that comes from not trusting the Lord, and a biblical fear, a godly fear that is all filled reverence for the majesty of God, which frees us from slavish fear to the world. You see, that's what Samuel is getting at here, and that's why he includes in verse 21, saying, do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. You see, it's an interesting word he chooses there, empty. It's the Hebrew word tohu, which is the same word used in Genesis 1-2, where it's translated formless or without form. That is, it's something that is incomplete, that is of no real value, something that cannot sustain life. That is something that is formless, which is why it's translated empty in this context here. He's basically saying, if you turn to anything else besides this God, you will find it empty. You will find it unable to save. So if you've come to see your sin, as 
the trust we all have, then the call to us as God's people is to not run away in fear, but rather to run to the Lord our God. The question remains, though, why do that? You see, assurance is what everyone is looking for. And when a person has a firm grasp on what is at stake in any given situation, not even a spiritual situation, just any situation in life where something hangs in the balance, where there's a cost, uh, depending on how things turn out, they want some sort of assurance. At least they're looking for it. They want to know how they can know something is true, that something will come to pass. And, and this is something that the, the great scholar Cornelius Van Til really pressed into, asking the question, how can we be certain of what we know? Or, or in other words, how can we know anything? Because ultimately, everybody wants certainty and assurance. But in reality, what Van Til concluded is that we cannot know anything for certain apart from the person of God. Only in Him can we find certain objective truth, and only through knowing Him can we ourselves be certain of anything. Now, what does that have to do with the text? Well, in verse 22, we read this. Samuel encouraging the people, Do not be afraid. You have done this evil. Yes, come to the Lord. Admit it. But don't turn aside. Don't turn to the empty things. Why not? Verse 22. He says, For the Lord will not forsake His people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The only thing that can offer us assurance of anything is God himself and his unchanging character. For example, you know, weather men often get a bad rap. We know, right? Because they tell us what's going to happen, it doesn't happen, and it ruins our plans. Well, the reason they get a bad rap is because they're trying to predict something that is, at times, very unpredictable. Now, is God that way? Sometimes, the world certainly, but sometimes even His people can tend to live that way. We live with a fear that, if we're logical about it, says, well, we don't really know what God's going to do. We're not really certain, and so I, I'm really anxious about this. Jesus warned us against that, did He not? God cares for you. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his notice. And the Bible could not be any clearer that God is not this way. Now when we say God is not unpredictable, we're not saying that we can always know what he's going to do. The secret things belong to the Lord. But what we are saying is that what he says is true and we can always trust him to do as he says he will do and to act consistently with his character. That's why Samuel appears to the name of the Lord. He will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. And that name, I would remind you, is explained somewhat to us in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses has the experience with the burning bush and he goes there and he hears the Lord call to him from that bush, and he goes forth, and the Lord calls him to go into Egypt and to command Pharaoh to let his people go, one of the questions Moses asks is, who do I tell him sent me? Which is a good question. It's the first thing they're going to ask. Like, well, 
who is this God that you're claiming to follow, that you claim has the authority over Pharaoh, that his people should be released? In Exodus 3, 13 and 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, we've probably all, I would assume, either heard that taught or heard it preached, and we know something of how that is a strange formulation in English, and even in Hebrew for that matter. But what it gets at is that there's no other way to define God. He cannot look at some created thing and say, well, I'm, I'm like that. Tell him the one who's like that sent you. He can't point to some change that's going to take place and say, I'm the one who, who's going to do this as if things transpire and, and change over time. No, what he says is, I am, and I am the one who exists. And Aristotle's actually helpful here. He's a philosopher who distinguished between two things, that is being and becoming. And being would refer to, say, personhood, right? Uh, I am will today, and tomorrow I'm still going to say I am will. But in another sense, I'm becoming. Uh, hopefully, I'm more sanctified tomorrow than I am today. I'm becoming sanctified. And in some sense, everybody is becoming something. They're growing in one way or another. And this is common to all humankind. But with God, there is no becoming. There is only being. As our confession puts it in chapter 2, in summary, God is pure being. Now, why do we go into all of that? Because that very reality is the basis that Samuel is appealing to here. The Lord will not forsake his people. Okay, why? For his great name's sake. The only way he could change in his purposes, the only way he could change in his promises, is if he changed in himself. If he started becoming rather than simply being. We all know Malachi 3.6 where God says explicitly, I the Lord do not change. And therefore we can be sure that what he says yesterday is the same as today is the same tomorrow. All of his promises. And Israel as a people need to be reminded of that. They are the ones who have received the promises of God. And therefore they ought to trust in those very promises, because God will not forsake them. God will not forsake His holy name. And moreover, He determined to make a certain group of people His people, we see here in this text. Israel, a church under age in the Old Testament as they are called, ultimately, all the elect, Abraham's seed, these are His people. And we see them as those who receive His promises. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. And notice there again something we already appealed to in the first place. And that is that God's choosing of a people, His electing of a people is not based on people who already meet his standards. No, he makes a people. He chooses people who are by nature unworthy, children of wrath, and he makes them 
his own, brings them into covenant, into fellowship with him. So the only way then, coming back to Israel, as they're standing here, fearful because they've sinned against the holy and righteous God, seeing it affirmed by the signs in the heavens, trembling, the assurance offered to them is that the only way the Lord would reject a sinner who comes to him in humility and contrition is if he changed his mind, therefore changed who he was. And that cannot and will not happen. Now here, we have to circle back to Samuel's role in all of this. We've kind of left him by the wayside. But in verse 23, we see that God demonstrates this faithfulness in part by providing a mediator. Now, we've already seen this alluded to in verse 19, where the people requested his prayers. Now, again, go back to the setting. This is the same Samuel who's been rejected by them. Because Samuel stood in basically the threefold office. He was prophet, he was priest, and he was ruler or, or judge at that time. And they rejected him and said, no, give us a king. Now they're coming back to this same Samuel and saying, hey, pray for us. We've messed up. Help us here. And so now he addresses that very plea. And his response, essentially, woe to me if I don't pray. Now we have to ask, that's pretty noble of Samuel. This is a people who's been very hateful, who's been ungrateful. Why care for such a hateful and ungrateful bunch? Why doesn't he just say, you know what? You've made your bed, you're going to have to lie in it. Well, because ultimately, Samuel was a servant of God and not men. In the sense that he was there and he was committed to his calling because it was God who called him to do it. And in God's glorious grace, he called Samuel to be a priest and a mediator of his word for those poor souls. And so as a priest, he prays for them. He intercedes. Far be it from me that I should sin by ceasing to pray. And then also he delivers the word, and I will instruct you, he says, in the good and the right way. I hope you're already coming to see this a little bit, but at this point, we have to note Samuel as a type of Christ. We're often familiar with Moses as a type of Christ, David as a type of Christ, but here Samuel is another who is a significant type or a foreshadowing of the Savior who was to come. We see this in part by his supernatural birth, the opening of his barren mother's womb. We see it in his being set apart from birth for service and devotion unto God. As we've already mentioned, we see it in him being the holder of the threefold office, prophet, priest, and ruler. We see a parallel in him being rejected by the people. And now we see a parallel in him being committed to continue serving them in obedience to God. God has always demonstrated his faithfulness by providing covenant mediators. Adam and Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. And here we have Samuel. Now what I want you to notice here is that we can commend Israel for turning to that which God had provided. You know, they did turn to Samuel. They did recognize there was something special about him, that he had been provided by God. And so 
resisting what was no doubt an inherent pragmatism, they turned to what God had provided. They leaned in upon his means of grace. And though Samuel is by no means perfect, he's an imperfect example, but nevertheless he is a faithful prefigurement of Christ. And if Samuel displays the virtues expected of a prophet and a priest and a king, then we can be confident that Christ embodies them perfectly. And so if you're here this morning, and you're heeding the word of the Lord, you're hearing what God is calling Israel to, and you're recognizing how you fit into that, that you too have sinned against the Lord, if you're desiring to turn to Him, but you're wondering how exactly is that possible, how can it be that I can come before this perfect and holy God, then know that the Jesus we speak of is the perfect fulfillment of what is foreshadowed in Samuel. Where Samuel refuses to back down from interceding and being there for the people, where he promises to give them the Lord's instruction faithfully, that is what Christ has done and fulfilled. In Hebrews 1, we read that long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And even beyond that in chapter 7 of Hebrews, picking up in verse 22, listen into this. We read, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, if that is not an answer to the question of how can I come to God with my sin, why should I not run away, I don't know what is. Because that there is the gospel that the Lord proved ultimately, finally, His faithfulness in sending His Son to make satisfaction for the dead of His people. I think of Pilgrim's Progress, such a wonderful book, that is an allegory of the Christian life. But in the first part, Christian is on his journey and he's carrying this burden. And this burden is the burden of sin and it just weighs on him and it drags him down and he just so badly longs to be rid of this burden. That's what we experience when we come into the knowledge of our sin. And ultimately... Christian burdens falls away and rolls down the hill never to be seen again when he comes and looks upon the cross. When he looks upon what God had provided and ultimately when he comes to know God fully through his son. (coughs) Jesus is the perfect word. He's God himself. He is the assurance of salvation and he receives the absolute worst of sinners who turn to him in repentance and in faith and who trust in Him alone for their salvation. You see, this is why we have a better covenant than the people of Israel had at this point. Because we have seen it brought to its fulfillment. 
they had only a foreshadowing of the things to come. Certainly they had real hope. Certainly they had the promise that they could trust in. But we have seen it brought to pass. And where Samuel was a mediator, a priest, a ruler, a type of the one to come, we have seen him come in his fullness. We can rest assured that when we put our trust in Christ, our sin is no more before God. And we can come to him with our burdens, with our guilt, and we can know that they are wiped away by his blood because of his grace. Which leads us then to the final question, so what then? come to the cross. We've come to Christ. Our sin has been forgiven. But then what do we do? Is that all that we do? Samuel answers, not at all if those things are true. We've come to fear the Lord. If we've been freed and called to follow Him, then that's exactly what we are to do. To follow him in faithful obedience, considering what great things he has done for us. Samuel puts it, only fear the Lord, serve him faithfully, consider what great things he has done for you. Uh, just the other day, I think it was yesterday as a matter of fact, Hannah was sharing with me something she had read on social media between one of our friends and an atheist. And... The, the center of the, the debate, really the accusation against our, our Christian friend by the atheist, is that they were basically in bondage under oppression by deity. Right? That they're in slavery to this God and not of a good kind. Now our friend winsomely explained that in fact there is freedom, the greatest amount of freedom to serve our soul's greatest desire before the Lord. Because for the Christian, the motivation for obedience is not that there's a price to pay, that God has something over on us that we can never live up to, and so we just have to give all of our life and just grudgingly, begrudgingly serving Him and doing these things we don't want to do. That, my friend, is not at all the Christian life. Rather, the motivation for obedience is a gratitude, a joy that we get to serve and to have a relationship with our soul's greatest desire. That's what it means to faithfully follow the Lord with all of our heart. And so, yes, are we called to obedience? Absolutely, but it's an obedience of joy. Because those who experience God's grace are called to walk in it, which is why Samuel concludes with the warning. But if you do still act wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Now, he doesn't mean to end on a bad note or leave a sour taste in their mouth, but he's reminding them that we're not antinomian. It's not that, all right, God's wiped everything away, and so we don't have to worry about anything anymore. No, God has fulfilled. God has satisfied the debt before him in our place. And in doing so, He's brought us into covenant with Him where we are to walk in fellowship with Him. And that is a gift. Because in that setting, in that relationship, we have the one true King whom we can trust, whom we can depend upon, 
and whom we can say as we read earlier from his New Testament quoting Psalm 118, what can man do to me? Nothing. Because we are secure in God's hand and our souls are secure with him. And so in verse 25 there to conclude, you can replace your king with whatever you serve above God. Empty things that cannot profit or deliver. If we do wickedly, both we and whatever we put our trust in will be swept away. All that will remain is the one who is. We put our trust in him. We trust that he has suffered on the cross. He's given to us his eternal life. And so we can say with Paul then, as he contemplates upon this wonderful salvation, as he looks forward to the ultimate end of it, the resurrection of the body, he writes in Philippians 3, 12 and through 16, he says, Not that I have already obtained this, where I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And so the call from 1 Samuel 19 and following this morning, is that we would hold true to that word that has been delivered to us. That we would trust in this God who has brought us into fellowship with Himself. And that if you are here today and you have not done that, you would place your trust in Him, knowing He is worthy of your trust. And that though you are unworthy of His favor, He has bestowed it upon you in Christ. The one who believes in Him will have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, for the consistency of your promise from the beginning of this Bible to its very end. We thank you, Lord, that ultimately these promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this word that we've heard this morning to strengthen our hearts, to steady, Lord, our walk, Continue to guide us and move us toward greater obedience, toward greater assurance in you. Because your grace is sufficient for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have continued to build your church. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to do that as we go forth even today. As we go throughout our weeks. Use us. Keep us. Smile upon us, Lord, and be glorified in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Bill.